Welcome to Behind the Curtain, L.A. Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. In this episode, L.A. Opera's Richard Seaver music director, James Conlin, continues to explore Mozart's masterwork, The Marriage of Figaro, and the original revolutionary play by Pierre-Augustin Beaumarchais upon which it was based. Though all performances of L.A. Opera's planned production of The Marriage of Figaro, originally scheduled for June 6th through 28th, have necessarily been canceled due to restrictions related to the novel coronavirus, we hope you will still enjoy going inside the work with our conductor, hearing Maestro Collins' thoughts and insights into this sparkling, and one might even say incendiary opera. This is James Conlon. The servants in this house take longer to dress than their masters, complains the Count. Figaro retorts, that's because they don't have servants to help them. It's one of my favorite lines from Beaumarchais' play, a pity Mozart and Daponte didn't include it in the opera. The third act of Beaumarchais' The Marriage of Figaro is where it becomes the most political, veers most towards social criticism and towards satire of the contemporary judicial system. Mozart and da Ponte had to shorten the text. It was long by any standards and certainly by operatic norms. Excising much of the third act accomplished this, but more importantly, it greatly reduced the possibility of difficulties with the censorship and or royal displeasure. The Beaumarchais of The Marriage of Figaro was not the same man as the one who had written The Barber of Seville. In the decade between the premieres of the two comedies, 1875 and 1884, Beaumarchais' expansion into diplomacy had broadened his scope. At first, a minor emissary, then a seminal tactician and a supreme strategist and activist. His time in England had convinced him that France, rather than find itself in direct open conflict with their powerful competitor, should try to draw the oxygen out of England's wealth by depriving it of its colonies. The colonial rebellion fermenting in America was an opportunity staring the French in the face, and Beaumarchais grasped this. He convinced the king to pursue a surreptitious policy. The French would provide practical help to the American colonial army in return for imported goods. The implementation of this policy was left to Beaumarchais. He delivered guns at his own expense to the insurgents, including those that were used in the Battle of Saratoga, the turning point of the war for American independence. No surprise that the marriage of Figaro has a complexity hitherto absent in the Barber of Seville. Mozart, together with da Ponte, elevated the opera buffa to a level of sophistication, complexity, and pathos that was unimaginable beforehand. Part of that transformation was accomplished by realizing the latent potential of the ensemble. We have already seen that in Act Two. Act Three will contain a sextet which will move the comedy from the ridiculous to the sublime in an instant. After the finale of Act Two, Mozart starts again from zero with the long-range goal of creating a climactic conclusion. This time, not leading to a stalemate, but to the denouement, or resolution. All conflicts are to be resolved and loose strands tied together. He will accomplish this, as he did in Act Two, with an extended finale of interlocking movements involving all the characters. The crux of Act Three will change the web of relationships definitively. 
Figaro will be acknowledged as the lost illegitimate son of Marcellina, who transforms from his adversary to an indulgent and loving mother, and Dr. Bartolo, his longtime nemesis. The Count can no longer force Figaro to marry Marcellina, and consequently nothing stands in the way of Figaro's marriage to Susanna. The Count himself has abolished the droit de seigneur, so he can't employ it to satisfy his yearning for Susanna. Hope springs eternal, however, and in his perseverance, he walks straight into a trap set by the two women. As we see, in addition to class struggle, the battle of the sexes is the other powerful dynamo behind the plot's churning wheel. Here, the struggle for dominance is not limited to rank. The Count tries, and fails, to make his wife, her servant, and even the daughter of the gardener bend to his will. The women all employ their intelligence and charms to maneuver around the men. Figaro, eternally outfoxing the world, is outwitted himself by Susanna. Whereas he has greatly demonstrated that he is ingenious and clever in the Barber of Seville, he is somewhat out of his depths with the women and the type of intelligence and insight that is necessary for good human relations. Mozart is clearly a champion of the women, the equality of the sexes, fidelity, and marriage. Now back to the music, continuing to concentrate on the arias of the third and fourth acts. Mozart radically changes his approach now, first for the arias of the Count and the Countess. They have become grand and are given the form of many a concert aria, by which I mean they will have an introductory recitativo accompagnato, not with only the harpsichord, but with the entire orchestra, followed by a slow movement and then a fast one. In the case of the Count, trumpets and timpani are employed in keeping with his social status. Mozart earlier did the same for Bartolo in Act I, but in that case, their presence was ironic. The Count has just won an assignation in the garden for the evening with Susanna, but overhears her with Figaro and concludes, correctly, that he is falling into a trap. His anger mounts and he swears vengeance against Figaro. It is a counterweight to both Figaro's and Bartolo's Act I arias. Here is the recitative. And here's the second part. And the third, just the hope of my vengeance consoles me and makes me rejoice. Anima 
And now the mirror image, the Countess's aria. It is also in three parts. First, the recitative. She muses over the plot to win back her husband and his fidelity. She exclaims at the end of the recitative, To what a humiliated state I have been reduced by a cruel husband's fusion of infidelity, jealousy, and disdain. And I am forced to seek the aid of my servant. That striking statement is the only time she refers to her superior rank in the social structure. And now the slow section. Where have the tender, sweet, and pleasurable moments gone? To where have the vows from his mendacious lips disappeared? Dove sono? But, unlike the Count, she turns not to retribution, but to hope and determination. By so doing, Mozart has prepared the way for the coup de théâtre at the end of the opera, the Countess's culminating act of forgiveness. This aria is not drawn from Beaumarchais' text, and it is clearly Mozart's intention to begin to focus us on the Countess's magnanimous compassion as an instrument of the divine. I had promised to return to Marcellina, and now the moment has come. She enters both play and opera with a less than positive image. She is demanding to marry Figaro to settle a loan that she has made to him. We see her haughty and petty nature in her interaction with Susanna. Because we, and clearly all of the authors, 
identify with Suzanne and Figaro's hopes to marry, we see her as an unpleasant, if somewhat comic, obstacle. From the moment she recognizes Figaro as her long-lost illegitimate son and identifies Bartolo as the father, she transforms. Upwardly mobile, she will now have a husband, a son, and, in her mind, respectability. But she seems to have a genuine change of heart and allies herself now with Figaro and Susanna. Her scene starts with a recitativo secco, meaning with harpsichord only. It is a close translation of the play. It ends with an affirmation that is insightful and cynical, but also forgiving. When our heart is not hardened by personal interests, she says, every woman should defend her own sex from the oppression of ungrateful men. The aria, which is often cut, describes how animals in nature live in harmony with their mates. It is only in the human race that the loving women are treated with treachery and cruelty by the men. Her fiery coloratura at the end captures those sentiments. Mozart and da Ponte had to condense one of the most extraordinary and daring passages in the play. Marcellina gives a powerful and stinging rebuke to men, eloquent, passionate, and far ahead of its time. So daring was it that it had to be cut from the performances in Paris, though Beaumarchais insisted it be published. Mozart and da Ponte knew they could not present it as it stood and found a more elliptical paraphrase. It falls on far more appreciative ears today. Bartolo, hypocrite that he is, accuses her as having led a wayward youth after fathering a son with her out of wedlock. Here is her response in the David Coward translation of the original Beaumarchais. Yes, wayward, and much more so than you think. I don't propose to deny my faults. They are all too clear today. Yet it is hard to have to atone after leading an irreproachable life for 30 years. Nature intended me to be virtuous, which I was, once I was allowed to use my own judgment. But at that age of illusion, innocence, and hardship, when predatory men besiege us and when we are most vulnerable to poverty, what can a girl do against so many concerted enemies? The man who judges us severely today may perhaps have ruined the lives of a dozen unfortunates. Unfeeling men who brand the plaything of your lust with the stigma of your contempt. We are your victims. It's you who should be punished for the mistakes we make in our youth. You and your magistrates who preen themselves on their right to judge us and through their culpable negligence, leave us with no honest way of earning a living. Is there any form of employment 
that's left for a poor working girl. Even in the highest ranks of society, all that women get from men is condescension and contempt. Women are lured by a show of sham respect into very real slavery. If we have property, the law treats us like children. If we stray, it punishes us as responsible adults. Ah, in all your dealings with us, your attitudes deserve nothing but disgust or pity. But what difference will it make, my son, if you and I are rejected by a man who is not just? Don't look back at where you came from. Keep your eyes on the road ahead. Share your life with a loving wife and a devoted mother who will compete only to show how much they love you. Be kind to both of us, happy for yourself, my son, and cheerful, frank, and generous to everyone you meet. That's all your mother will ask for. Basilio also is given an aria in one movement. It too is often cut. This wily priest turned musician, habitually intriguing, lives parasitically between the worlds of men and women, aristocrat and servant. He knowingly exploits both class struggle and the battle of the sexes. He would seem to agree with George Bernard Shaw that youth is wasted on the young. With age, he has developed composure, self-possession, and a little ice. La malpratica ragion, se bianchio lo stesso poco, fui quel pazzo cor non son, fui quel pazzo cor non son, ma col tempo coi peli di donna prema capito, e i capricci e i puntini dalla testa mi cavò, dalla testa mi cavò. Preso un picciolo abituro, seco lei mi tresse un giorno e togliendo giù dal muro, dal pacifico soggiorno, una pelle di somaro, di somaro, di somaro. Prendi vizio, figlio caro, oh figlio caro, poi disparve mi lasciò, poi disparve mi lasciò. His delightful aria concludes with a moral. Indignity, peril, disgrace, and even death can be avoided by wearing a donkey's hide. Finisce il culmine le pose passi, era orribile, anzi a me passi. Già già mi tocca, l'ingorda bocca, già di difendermi, speme no no, speme no no. Fuggirsi, fuggirsi, 
Beaumarchais, Figaro delivers a long soliloquy as his mood grows increasingly darker when he imagines Susanna to be unfaithful with the Count. It is an autobiographical tirade against the aristocracy and his bad luck in life. King Louis was not amused, and again Mozart knew that it would not go in the Viennese court. So he distilled a part of it and has turned it into a simple, jealous rant. The introductory recitative with orchestra moves from desolation to bitterness to rage. Tutto disposto, l'ora dovrebbe ser vicina. Io sento gente ed essa non alcun. Io comincio mai a fare scimonito mestiere di marito. Ingrato nel momento della mia cerimonia e godeva leggendo e nel vederlo io rideva di me senza saperlo. Oh, Susanna, Susanna, quanta pena mi costi. The principal part of the aria starts with a thumping rhythm in which the main falling interval is reminiscent of Paisiello's Dr. Bartolo. Remember that the same singer sang both roles. The key is again E-flat major. Is that thumping Figaro's tantrum or is it the thwacking life has dealt him? Near the end, he is tormented by the French horns of the orchestra. It's a musical pun which mirrors his jealous Act One aria, which also prominently featured the horns. The word for horn in Italian is corno, and like English, it can also mean the horns of a stag or the horns of a cuckold. It is clear which ones Mozart intends and which ones Figaro hears. Attach your ears to the horns throughout, now that you know their significance, and to the rapid-fire delivery of the words as Figaro fumes. In response to the horns, Figaro says, Il resto, il resto nol dico, ciao ognuno lo sa. The rest I don't say, everybody knows it. Now let's put it all together and listen to it in its entirety. Figaro addresses this diatribe directly to the men, as if to warn them all. It is an acrimonious outburst. He will appear all the more ridiculous for it when he realizes later that he had no reason to be jealous. Aprì un po' 
e sciocchi guardate queste femmine guardate cosa son guardate cosa son guardate guardate cosa son queste chiamate dagli ingannati sensi a cui tributa i censi la debole ragion la debole ragion la debole ragion sono streghe che incantano per farci penar sirene che incantano per farci affogar cibette che allettano per trarci le piume comete che brillano per toglierci il lume son rose spinose son poco il pipezzone son forse fetigne comunque fatigne maestre d'inganni amiche da panni che fingono mentono amore non sento non sento pietà non sento pietà Guardate queste femmine, guardate cosa sono, cosa sono, cosa sono. Sono streghe che incantano, il resto non lo dico. Sirene che cantano, il resto non lo dico. Cibette che allettano, il resto non lo dico. Comete che brillano, il resto non lo dico. Sono cose spinose, sono volpi pezzone, sono cose pedigne, colombe maligne, maestre di inganni, amiche da panni che fingono, mentono amore, non sento, non sento un pietà, non sento un pietà, no, 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 il resto, il resto non lo dico, già ognuno, già ognuno lo sa, il resto, il resto non lo dico, e già ognuno, già ognuno, Già ognuno lo sa, già ognuno lo sa, già ognuno lo sa. Il resto non dico, the rest I don't say. Well, the rest I won't tell you now, but next time I will familiarize you with Figaro's extensive monologue in the original play and some of the tribulations that Beaumarchais had had to bear which are reflected in this so-called comedy. We will learn much about the author in this autobiographical diatribe and I will also fill you in on many of the details of his experience with the American revolutionaries and the Congress of our young country. Though not mentioned in the Act Five soliloquy, it left him with much about which to be bitter. This is James Conlon. See you next time. You've been listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thanks, and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.